Good afternoon. Uh, first, let me recognize the exchange students from UNC Law School. Welcome to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. We're uh, glad for you to be here. Uh, we hope and know that your experience at the law school will uh, give you great insights, uh, particularly into our common law legal system as compared to what I would imagine would be the civil law system that most of you are used to. Uh, Mr. Glover, it's always good to see you. It's nice to see your dear wife with you as well. Uh, and for others that are uh, here, we welcome you. Mr. Park, good to see you. Uh, our case, uh, which is our last case of the day, is State versus Caballero, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, I'm James Glover. I'm from Orange County. I represent Efren Caballero. He's convicted of first-degree murder of Jose Luis Guerrero, who was called Luis by his wife, attempted murder of his wife, Liliana Pichardo, and first-degree burglary for putting his reportedly putting his fist through the window to try to get into the house. The court granted review of a single issue. It is a issue where there was no objection, so it's a question of plain error, and the substance of the issue is whether a reserve deputy sheriff named Tear commented on Liliana's account of the events that was given to her. Tear was the first one of the, a number of people that showed up in response to two 911 calls. One was placed by Liliana. She spoke no English, so there was a translation issue. The other was made by a minute later by Efren Caballero. I'm, yes. And that caused a number of officers to come out to the site. The house where Luis Guerrero lived was the last one in a string. There were woods <coughs> next to his house, woods behind his house. Efren Caballero lived in the house next door. His sister or stepsister in the house next to that, and his parents in the house next to that. His father was the pastor of a church that all of these people attended. During his testimony, Tier talked about, based on his training and experience, a method he used <coughs> when taking a statement from a witness to test credibility. What he said was that after the story was laid out, he would go back and make suggestions about facts and see if the witness would either embellish or modify the story to be more in accord with these facts that he suggested. He said with respect to Liliana, he did it multiple times. He mentioned two in specific detail. 
one about clothing, one about whether she saw a weapon. What I've just told you, you will not find in the Court of Appeals opinion, you won't find it in the brief of the state. After explaining what he did, Tier then gave the report of the results of this test of credibility. He said Liliana never changed her story to adopt anything. She was 100% consistent, resolute, rock solid. It's simply our contention that this is a witness who is saying, I know how to test credibility of statements given about a crime, a murder. And I used it, and I got results, and there's nothing wrong with credibility. This is rock solid, no modification. Case law makes it clear that is not admissible. We only have one real lie detector test in our court system, and that's 12 citizens who sit and listen to the evidence and apply what they have learned throughout their life about how to assess the credibility of a story. And you've got 12 people doing that. How do we separate this aspect of the officer using the term credibility in terms of talking about how he tested the credibility of the witness out there in the field versus what the case law authorizes is permissible, and that is to say that a witness is being consistent? Well, the officer said, I use this to test the credibility of the story. I use it in this case, and I found the witness to be entirely credible. He also did use the terms, though, that he found the witness to be consistent. And of course, the case law authorizes consistency to be something about which another witness can offer. How do we separate as a court the aspect of whether it is appropriate or not appropriate since both types of terminology were used by this officer? Okay. The, the term is not, if he had just said she stayed consistent, the case law makes it clear that consistently repeating the same story is just fine. The jury can assess that. What it does not permit, what happened in this case, is I did this <coughs> process about setting out some new, different facts, altering the story, changing it a bit, adding to it. And she did not waver. So it is in the context of when this is presented as a testing method for determining credibility to the story that's being given to the officer that he is making an assessment of credibility. He lays out the test, he reports the results. Well, he uses the term consistent, didn't change, rock solid, never modified anything. All of those things are a way of explaining the result to the test administer. Can, can, he, can the officer testify to the test itself? In other words, I offered up this witness various alternatives, and these are the answers that the witness gave. Can the officer go that far? 
Absolutely. So, your, so the, the problem, in your view, is when we have the last concluding description that essentially said that the witness passed the test with flying colors. And those are my words. The, the problem here, Justice Irvin, is that the officer talked about administering a test to test credibility and then reported what the witness so did it, as the results. Is it your argument then that describing what was done as a test is problematic? I'm sorry? I said, is, your, is it your argument then that describing the procedure that the officer employed as a test, that's problematic? Describing what the witness did by itself is not a problem. Describing what the witness did in response to the test is a problem. It's a test of credibility. That's the term he used, <coughs> and the results then to that test, she didn't change when people who are not credible do, is an opinion about credibility. That's why it's wrong. That's why it's prohibited by the established case law. The other issue in the case, obviously, has to do with whether the error rose to the level of being plain error, whether there is a reasonable probability that the outcome would have been different if it, if Reserve Deputy Teer had not given the jury the benefit of his expertise in testing credibility. There are a number of parts to this. There were two diametrically opposed accounts one from Miliana, one from Efren Caballero, about what happened to Luis. He was stabbed multiple times, but how it happened, they were diametrically opposed. <coughs> when she gave her story to Tear, uh, let me set up the background. The, the backyard of this house, the assault involved multiple stab wounds. I mean a lot of them. It was behind the house where Luis lived. It was in the backyard. That area is extremely dark, not lit. When Liliana was talking to Tear, she said that she heard noises in the backyard screaming. She ran out to the carport and could see the defendant assaulting her husband. At trial, her testimony was, after hearing the screams running outside, she went to the backyard. She pushed the man assaulting her husband, who was wearing a hood. When she did that, she could see his face, and that's when she could tell it was the defendant, Efren Caballero. The, the two versions are distinctly different. The one she gave to Tear suggests that she assumed it was the defendant, but was not in a position to see because of the lighting conditions. So that's a major problem with her story. It changed dramatically so that it became an eyewitness account when there was a reason to believe if her first version was true that she was not in a position to see 
or identify the assailant. The second problem with the case is the state had offered no evidence of any reason in the universe as to why Efren Cavallero would want to harm, let alone stab to death, Luis. They were next door neighbors. They were church members of the same church. The church members referred to each other as brother and sister. There was no evidence of any argument, <coughs> no evidence that Luis had ever done anything that for, for which Efren could have taken offense, no suggestion there was anything about which Efren could have been concerned that Lewis might do. And when asked about this issue of motive, Liliana said she didn't have any idea. She had no idea why it happened. And that's the state of the record. There's no explanation. The next part is the physical evidence. There was physical evidence that some spot of blood from Luis containing his DNA was found on the blue jeans that Efren Caballero was wearing. Efren's story trial was that the two men were assaulting Luis, one of them ran off, he ran up, the other one ran off and he knelt down beside him. If there was no blood on his clothes, on his jeans, that would have been a big red flag. This was a bloody scene and there was no way to get spotless clothing. But there was no other physical evidence. There was no blood on clothes that Efren was wearing at the time the police arrived. And more importantly, after an extensive search, actually multiple searches, of the area surrounding it, no clothes with blood, other than the blue jeans, were ever discovered anywhere. No weapon with a sharp edge with blood on it was found anywhere. And in addition, this was a case where if Everett had done the stabbing, there, there was simply no time and no means for him to have disposed of that much bloody evidence for two reasons. He had no transportation, he had no car, he couldn't go anywhere. The other reason was that he made the 911 call, was still on the phone when the officers arrived moments later. If, if, if I understood Mr. Park's brief correctly, and if I haven't, he can certainly tell me. I understood the state to argue that there was a 10-minute lapse or so between the time that the assault occurred and the time the phone call was made, or something to that effect. Is that your understanding of the record? If not, what is your understanding of the record? We don't have the time exactly. Um, Liliana testified that after seeing the assault, she ran back in the house, she made the 911 call. That was not a 10-minute lapse. The timing of the calls, uh, the, 
Efren Caballero's call was one minute later. One minute. I'm so sorry. I'm there's sorry, not Mr. a big I'm gap. I'm sorry, Mr. Glover. One minute later than what? One minute later than Liliana's call. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So Liliana's call happens at one point. Efren's call is a minute later. Liliana's call is quite quickly after the assault takes place. Was there 10 minutes? I, I don't know that the record shows exactly how long it took the police to arrive. It took him some time. But Everett had no place to go. He had nowhere to go. He had no means to go anywhere. And they searched the yard, the backyard, the woods, everywhere, and they did it twice and found nothing. The next thing is, and the state has taken some issue with this, um, is that Reserve Deputy Tier testified as if he were an expert. He wasn't asked to be found expert by the judge. He wasn't qualified in that sense, but he spoke as an expert. He had his law enforcement training in 1995, that was 20 years before this date of this assault. He was a lawyer. He had served as a deputy sheriff for a number of years. How many, he didn't tell us. Then he practiced law for a number of years. Then he returned to law enforcement in 2012, four years before this event and his testimony about his testing method of credibility was based upon all of his training and experience. And the case law tells us quite clearly <coughs> that even if not formally denominated as an expert, the um, juries are likely to see testimony of this kind from a police officer as coming from someone who has a special kind of training and expertise, just as he provided to have. So, in the absence of physical evidence to tie Efren to the assault, in light of the lack of motive and the major change in Liliana's story, from a version in which she couldn't have been in the position to see the face of the assailant. This case comes down to credibility. It just flatly does. And if the jury had not heard reserve deputy tears, explanation of how credibility can be tested and how he did it and how Liliana's testimony passed the test of flying colors, not a hitch. There's a reasonable probability this outcome would have been different, the result of this trial would have been different. I'll reserve whatever time I have left for her. I'm sorry, Justice Earl. Uh, you might have get to this on rebuttal, but I would like to ask you at this point. I'm sorry, my mic wasn't on. I apologize. And I'm, my ears are 80 years old. No, it's my error. My, I, I'm really sorry. Um, what I want to ask you at this stage, your response to what I understand the state's argument to be that on the admissibility question, not, the, um, not whether it was um, 
prejudicial. But just on the question of whether this testimony was admissible in the first place, the state seems to be arguing that because the defendant asked the witness uh, questions to test her, the truthfulness of what she was saying, because she was cross-examined, uh, her credibility was then put into issue and that it was therefore permissible for the state to bolster her credibility with testimony about the officer's special expertise in testing credibility. Yeah. Uh, we addressed that in the reply brief. The state is relying on a rule that says that if a if the the difference is between um, impeaching a witness's statement by prior statements and dealing with the issue of character for truthfulness. The state is relying on the, on the rule of evidence that has to do with a person's character for truthfulness, and there was no evidence in this case one way or the other. There was no character evidence. Character evidence for truthfulness can come in the form of an opinion or in the form of reputation. That's the way it works. That isn't what happened in this case. What happened in this case is, what happened in every case, a witness's credibility, issues of credibility of a witness are raised through prior statements and other things. And it was challenged. Liliana's credibility of her version at trial was challenged. That does not permit or justify a witness giving an opinion about her credibility. It just doesn't. And the law is clear on this. We, a lot of this comes up in cases involving child sexual assaults. The child testifies. The defendant may or may not testify. If he does, it's completely different. The child, in most cases, gives varying versions of the facts. And the law is clear. No witness can testify as to an opinion about the credibility of the alleged victim or of the alleged victim's story. Different rules dealing with different subjects. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices. I may please the court. Ryan Park from the North Carolina Department of Justice representing the state. In this case, as you've just heard, a Durham jury found beyond a reasonable doubt that defendant brutally attacked his neighbor, Luis Guerrero, and then attempted to murder Luis's wife, Liliana, by chasing her into the house, attempting to force his way into the house, and then punching the glass door, striking her in the face, and causing severe lacerations to her face, and also to her infant son. For two independent reasons, the Court of Appeals did not err when it unanimously held uh, that this, these convictions were proper. So first on the question of whether there was error. As this court has repeatedly made clear, it is perfectly permissible for a law enforcement investigating officer to testify as to the consistency of a victim's statement. And the reason for this rule is, is clear. It's the common sense notion that when a witness is consistent over time, when their story does not change over time, it makes their testimony more credible. And this is, that's what this court said in Walters. That's the reason 
why we allow prior consistent statements generally though when that's done at least in my experience in the trial courts what happens is that you put up somebody to testify to what the witness said on the earlier time and recount the witnesses statement and then leave it to the jury to determine whether those two statements are consistent or not in matter of fact there's a pattern instruction as I recall that deals with that question they went a bit further than that here didn't they that's correct your honor and I think that's what makes this case somewhat novel somewhat different uh, and I think at the first step I would just bracket that that occurred here multiple times there are five times in the record where the jury heard that Liliana told this same story again and again and again before the challenge testimony. So what- But does that, does that go to whether any admission of these additional statements about rock solid would be prejudicial or does or to be prejudicial assuming error or does that tend to sh somehow show that the admission of the rocks, well really wasn't the admission, the allowance of the statement that it was rock solid uh, well, was permissible? So I think it goes to prejudice, Your Honor. And, and uh, so I'll bracket that uh, if I can and, and direct, uh, try to answer the, the question directly. I do think that this is an unusual case where they, uh, the deputy tier testified essentially as to the reason why prior consistent statements are allowed and then he commented that they were consistent. I don't think that is error. But he went beyond that, didn't he? He also said this particular witness's accounts based on the tests that I gave were, quote, rock solid. So I don't Something think- Something like that. I don't think that is, is accurate, Your Honor. I think if you look at the passage, the, the passage in question is very short. Right. It's, it's really about half of a, a transcript page. And I, I think it's an exaggeration to say that it was a test and a method and results. None of those words ever appear in the transcript. Uh, I can, yeah, I can direct it to you. It's 588, 589. Well, the words uh, rock solid appear in the transcript, don't they? So that's correct, Your Honor. And I think in, on rock solid, there's, there's several different aspects of the passage that I think are relevant. Sorry, it's 587 to 88. Um, so the, the first passage is, he says, based on my training and experience. So that's the first you know, phrase that is, is deemed objectionable. And I think on that phrase, I would suggest to the court that that is not unusual in any respect. I think in any criminal trial, you have law enforcement officers providing context for why they're doing what they're doing, uh, why they're perceiving things the way they're perceiving. There's well, what's different here that, that to me that I don't know that I've seen before is where he goes on to say that specifically it affects her credibility. Yes, Your he Honor. He says that twice. That's um, I don't think I've seen that very often, if ever, where the witness is specifically saying, hey, this bears on the witness's credibility. I agree. I agree completely, Your Honor. And I think that that approaches a gray area that is different in kind than mentioning the prior consistent statements and mentioning that they were consistent, which I don't think is objectionable. And what I would say on that point, Your Honor, is that this court has establish what I consider to be a bright line that is administrable, which is that there, is, there has never been a case that I've been able to find that Mr. Glover has been able to identify where this court or the Court of Appeals has found vouching to be impermissible when there isn't a statement about the person telling the truth. 
Uh, there isn't a statement saying, I believe this victim, uh, or I believe they are telling the truth. Uh, there are multiple, most of these cases, as, as your honors are aware, arise in the child sexual abuse context, where really the credibility of the victim is the entire case. Often, uh, it, especially hard cases, are ones where there's no physical evidence of abuse at all. And so the only question for the jury is really, who do you believe? Do you believe the child victim, or do you uh, believe the alleged perpetrator? And in, in those circumstances, this court is, as, as I, I know you are well aware, that that is plain error to say, you know, I, my job as a diagnostic physician, as an expert, is to determine whether there has been abuse, and we substantiated abuse. You know, that was what, the, the, what occurred in, in Warden, and that's what uh, occurred in other cases like Clark. Uh, there has never been a case where, um, if the line has not been crossed of saying, I believe that they are telling the truth, this court has found error. Well, well, what's the difference between saying um, that the person's um, credibility would be reduced if they change their story? This person hasn't. She stuck with it. She was consistent. She was rock solid. What's the difference between doing that and saying, and so therefore, obviously, she's credible? <laughs> I mean, and what's the difference between saying she's credible and she's telling the truth? So what, the, the line that I would draw here is that um, it is perfectly permissible for a lawyer addressing a jury, for a lawyer addressing a appellate court, to say that if a witness is consistent, it makes them more credible. You know, that's part of my plain error argument, that if a witness tells the same story consistently over and over again, or the converse, they are changing their story repeatedly, it tells... I, mean, I was just going to ask, is it, in your view, the same thing for you as an attorney or me when I practiced to stand there and make an argument that somebody's statement was consistent uh, on the one hand, and a witness testifying under oath at a trial, I mean, that's the same thing? I don't believe that they're the same, but I think that when a law enforcement officer is simply testifying as to their common sense understanding of, of, of how human interaction works, that if someone is keeping the same story, even when modifications of the story would be um, you know, supplemented in, in a beneficial way, uh, or vice versa, that that makes them less credible or, or more credible. Uh, I, I agree that this approaches um, a gray area, and, it, and it's a much more difficult case than simply recounting the consistent statements, which occurred here and, and have not been challenged, uh, obviously. Uh, if, if, if I may, uh, I, I'd like to explain uh, why this is not plain error, Your Honor. So uh, if, if we went to Warden and, and to Clark, to Hammett into all these cases that involve similar uh, situations. Uh, again, I think this court has established a very clear line on plain error, which is that if the only evidence uh, of a crime, or, or that even a crime took place, uh, which is often in dispute in these sexual abuse cases, then it is plain error to impermissibly vouch for uh, a witness. Uh, but in Hammett, which was reaffirmed in Warden, uh, the court said if there is you know, other evidence, there's physical evidence that a crime took place, there's physical evidence of abuse, uh, and there's some other evidence that the defendant was the perpetrator, then that cannot be plain error. And, and here, of course, there is no dispute that a horrific crime did take place, and there is a whole host of evidence showing that defendant might have been the per perpetrator. It was completely reasonable for a jury to find that he was the perpetrator, uh, and, and that's all that's required uh, under Hammett. Uh, if, 
if I may, I think it's helpful to provide some context in terms of the full record that was before the jury, because you know, that is the plain error standard based on the whole record. Um, as I mentioned, there were five distinct times that the jury heard that uh, Mr. Uh, sorry, that Liliana's story had remained consistent. So the 911 call that she uh, when she called the dispatcher, you know, this was when her assailant, her husband's murderer, was still outside of her home. Uh, so she called the 911 dispatcher, and what did she say? She said, my neighbor, who she identified by name as Efren Caballero, had lured her husband outside, had immediately attacked him, that she had run outside and shoved a defendant off of uh, her husband, that he had chased her and punched her through the window, and that she had a bruised face and her face was cut. That is what she told the 911 dispatcher. That is materially the same story that she told Deputy Tier and, and the other officers assembled. Uh, and they, Officer Andrews testified to this as well. Um, and obviously the same testimony that she gave uh, when she testified uh, at trial. <coughs> there are a couple other aspects of her testimony that are, are, are very significant and I think uh, material here. So uh, the issue of the in-person identification and how it was dark. I think it was undisputed that it was dark. But there were actually three in-person identifications in the record. Uh, she saw him clearly when he came to her door, she testified, uh, prior to the attack, that she saw him through the open door. This is page 494, 495. And she saw his face. And then there is the disputed question of how well she could see the attacker when he, she shoved him. And then again, when she was chased back into her house, this is page 508, she testified that, again, through the glass door, immediately before he punched her in the face, he saw, she saw his face. Now, the defense at trial was all about a claimed misidentification, and he told what, what I can fairly describe as a wildly implausible story, that two Hispanic men had come to her, his house immediately before the attack and consumed cocaine, tried to pressure him to consume co cocaine, and he said, well, I was armed and I was dangerous, so I uh, threatened them and told them to leave my house because I don't want to do cocaine. And then immediately after that, he went outside to smoke a cigarette and saw that the two men were attacking his neighbor. That was his, that was his testimony. Uh, but Liliana testified that she, this was you know, her neighbor. She saw him every day, almost every day, for two years prior to that. They attended the same church. She was obviously very close with the stepfather's uh, a family, uh, and the stepfather had, had helped her, her and her husband and taken them in. So she knew who, who this face. This was not a, a stranger. Um, so, so that was the testimony. I, there are a couple other aspects of the testimony that are, frankly, uh, impossible to believe. I don't think any reasonable jury could believe uh, some of these facts. So he said, uh, well, first, he, at the 911 call, the dispatcher asked him, can you identify the race of these two men that you saw attacking your neighbor? And he said, no, I cannot. And then when the officers arrived, around 10 minutes later, uh, which we can discuss, uh, he told the officers, the two men are black. He said, squarely, they're black. We have all three of the officers testified that that is what uh, he told them. And then at trial, after uh, Liliana testified that he saw a man matching uh, Mr. Caballero's profile attacking her husband and attacking her, he changed his story and said, actually, these were unidentified Hispanic men who did cocaine, and then I saw them attacking 
uh, my neighbors. There is a, a number of other inconsistencies in the, in the story. I mean, the, perhaps the most significant piece of evidence is the clothing, right? So uh, the, when he appeared in front of the officers, his, his uh, jeans were muddy, his, his shoes were muddy, and he testified, he admitted uh, on the stand twice that he did not realize that his, muds, his, 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 his pants were dirty uh, until the officers arrived. And he strangely, uh, frankly, bizarrely said that he would have been clean as a whistle uh, if he had actually done it. So, so you know, he uh, was, was perhaps goaded into, into admitting that he had sufficient time to change his clothes uh, if he had done it. Um, but then, uh, of course, at trial, there was DNA evidence that the victim's blood uh, was on his pants. And so he said for the first time, four years after the incident, well, that's ex I can explain that. I, I, I kneeled over the, 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 um, the victim's body. I saw it was my, my brother, my, my dear neighbor, uh, and, uh, and that's how I got the blood and the mud on, on my jeans, uh, which is frankly just not capable of being believed. If he had innocently witnessed his neighbor dying, I think if any ordinary person had just witnessed his neighbor dying, he would have told the police about it. Uh, and when he was asked about why he didn't tell the police, he said he forgot. Uh, and I just don't think that on this record, you could find that there was a probable likelihood that any jury would have found this uh, challenge testimony to be, um, uh, to be material to, to their verdict. There's one other aspect on, on the plain error story as well. Again, the clothing, I think we agree, is the most material issue. And it's true, there was never a murder weapon found and there was never a black hoodie uh, that was found that uh, Liliana testified that she saw him in. Uh, but there is this strange phone call in the record, uh, a jailhouse phone call, where a couple days after he's arrested for murdering his neighbor, he gets into this extended conversation with his mother about cleaning his clothes. Uh, and he implores her, you have to go into my other room, he said, and clean my clothes. And you have to put it all in a black trash bag and throw them away. And the mother assures him that she had done so, that had gotten rid of everything that was no good, and that she had washed his clothes. Uh, now, I, I don't think this evidence alone uh, would be uh, sufficient to, to reach the, the plain error um, threshold, uh, to overcome a plain error threshold, but I would direct the court to, to Hammett. It's very similar to the kind of testimony that the court found relevant in, in, in Hammett, uh, where the court said that, you know, defendant had this bizarre account, uh, bizarre explanation for why he was engaging in what could be potentially innocuous sexual conduct, uh, con sorry, contact uh, with his, I believe it was his daughter, um, but, you know, given the context, uh, was extremely suspicious, extremely bizarre, and gave the jury enough to believe that he was the perpetrator, uh, along with all the other evidence. Um, and so I think this jailhouse phone call is, uh, is material in, in that way as well. There's some question about um, uh, motive or lack of motive. Uh, was, what was the essence of the defendant's testimony with regard to what he had been doing that day? Uh, thank you, Your Honor. So there was a, uh, another uh, falsehood that he admitted on the stand. Uh, he told the officers on the scene, and he admitted he told the officers on the scene, 
that he had been working that day, and he's in the construction, and that's why his, his jeans and his, his shoes were muddy. Uh, he testified, well, after his friend uh, testified that he'd, in fact, spent the entire day with defendant uh, drinking and smoking marijuana, that uh, he admitted on the stand, I did not work that day, that that was not true when I told the officers that. Um, and instead, uh, he, he then transitioned to the story about the two unidentified men who had, who had come to, to his house. You know, as the court is aware, motive is not an element of the crime. I think it's an important aspect of the story. I think there is a pretty clear narrative for why someone who is perhaps not stable uh, would, uh, would commit a crime like this. Uh, there was a very intimate relationship that uh, the victim and his wife had with the stepfather. Uh, and a very close relationship where uh, the defendant would ask them for favors, kind of treat them with disrespect and belittle them, and then when he broke into their house, uh, he, the victim told the stepfather about it, and uh, you know, some of that behavior stopped, uh, but then things got a little strange. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't think that this is an adequate motive, you know, there's no adequate motive uh, for a crime of this nature. I don't think an ordinary person would react to those circumstances uh, and, and murder their neighbor. Um, but in, in the context of this individual uh, deciding to, to take this action, uh, I think that probably explains uh, what, what triggered the events of that night. Was there any explanation or discussion by the defendant with regard to um, uh, the wife's having said that he came to uh, the door and asked the husband to come out and help and what uh, uh, at least the wife testified to what happened before the assault? Yes, Your Honor. So th that was an integral component of the 911 call, uh, the story that she told Deputy Tier uh, after uh, Luis's body had been found uh, and uh, her testimony at trial. So at least three times uh, the jury heard that same story that, uh, that she saw a defendant uh, through the, the, the door when he came to her, uh, her house and tried to lure her husband essentially outside, uh, insisting that he had to come out and help start a car. And, and so there's a lot of debate uh, at trial about you know, whether there was a car, uh, you know, where what the car was, uh, but that was the story about how defendant uh, lured the, the victim outside and then attacked, uh, attacked him. And, you know, I think it's particularly relevant because this is one of the other areas where defendant's story breaks down. There's really no explanation for why one of these unidentified Hispanic men would have come to, to their house uh, and, uh, you know, just gone to the neighbor's house and, and just knocked on their door. Uh, there's also no explanation for who punched Liliana under defendant's account. So this is a, a crucial aspect. He testified that they left his house, he went outside to smoke a cigarette, he saw them attacking his neighbor, and then he saw them run away uh, down, down um, uh, Club Boulevard, which is the area. And uh, in that account, there's no explanation for the shattered glass that all the officers saw on Liliana's front porch and who uh, committed the assault on Liliana after, after the murder. So uh, I think 
just on, on, uh, on Justice Earl's question uh, about the alternative 608 argument, the, the only thing I'd say there is uh, that is a true alternative argument <coughs> from the state. Uh, we do not think that uh, this argument is implicated here uh, because uh, we don't think that you can view this testimony as character evidence uh, about the truth, uh, about her propensity for, for telling the truth. Uh, I, uh, I, I take uh, uh, Mr. Glover's point that this isn't how character evidence is usually brought in uh, or reputation evidence. This is not uh, how it's done. Um, but it's a true alternative argument where uh, if the court construes this uh, passage as somehow uh, a testimony relating to her character for telling the truth because she's a consistent person or something to that effect, then we believe it would come in. Under would, would the state urge us to uh, make such an inference? No, Your Honor. I mean, our preference would be to not reach that. I mean, you're, 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 I mean, I guess what I'm trying to, I mean, you argued in your brief that somehow Rule 608A justifies what was done. Are you persisting in that argument before us now? I think our position is that as a true alternative, we do not think that Rule 608 uh, applies on these facts, but if the court views this passage as somehow Deputy Tier opining on, on her propensity for telling the truth, then we believe Well, let me, let, me, let me try again. Are you asking us to do that? I, I'm asking for two things, and I think this is, uh, unless there are further questions, an appropriate place to close. Uh, we think that the case law sets out two bright lines uh, on impermissible vouching. The first bright line is that as long as the witness does not state that uh, the other witness is telling the truth or that they believe the other witness, uh, then it's not impermissible vouching. And there are always going to be edge cases, but we think that uh, the testimony on 587, 588 doesn't, doesn't uh, cross that threshold. Uh, but even if we are beyond that threshold, uh, we think that the appropriate thing to do would be to go to plain error uh, and to assess uh, whether this had a probable impact uh, on the jury's determination overall. And there's, there's many reasons why we believe that's not true, but the bright line that this court has drawn on that is that if there is any other evidence uh, that a crime has taken place and that the defendant is culpable for that crime, then there's no plain error that arises from even uh, impermissible vouching. Let me ask you, uh, it seems that the problematic uh, two sentences on page 588 uh, despite multiple attempts to give her the opportunity to expand her story, she didn't. Is that despite multiple attempts to uh, uh, get her uh, to uh, say something else? She was true. I, I guess ultimately, and then of course the next sentence, her story stayed entirely 100% consistent, resolute, and solid. Uh, is, is that saying that this, her statements are consistent or is that saying that her statements are truthful? I think that this is providing the same kind of context that investigating officers often give when they're de describing why they did certain things and why he persisted in asking these questions and making these suggestions. So another example comes from Officer Andrews earlier in, in the trial where she testified that this is a completely ordinary testimony, not objected to at all, uh, that, he, that a defendant looked oddly calm. That was her testimony. And then the prosecutor asked, well, what does that mean? Why do you think it was odd? And she said, well, based on my training experience, people don't often have that demeanor 
uh, when there's been uh, this big disturbance in their neighborhood. Uh, and then she was subject to cross-examination on that statement, and the defense counsel pressed her on whether it was really odd, whether there are alternative explanations for that behavior. Um, so that is the ordinary kind of push and pull that occurs when you know, an investigating officer explains why they did certain things. Uh, I think that fits within this box. I, I think it is, what's unique here is that he pulled back the curtain and he explained why this evidence was admissible because it went into credibility. He explained why um, uh, he, he was doing this to a greater extent than normal. But we still, our position still is that he didn't cross the line and say he was telling the truth. And, and that really is what occurs in these cases when this court has found impermissible vouching. You know, you have Warden and some of these other cases where the testimony truly is my job is to determine whether the victim is telling the truth. I determined that the victim is telling the truth, naming the defendant as the perpetrator. And that's clearly impersonal vouching, and then it's a plain error analysis, but nothing like that occurs here. Well, I understand your position that, that in other cases, uh, individuals have testified that I believe this is true. But, but, if, but if instead of him discussing his training and expertise and how he knows that if you talk to a witness and they change their story, it reduces their credibility, if, instead of give, if instead he'd said, based on my training and expertise, I can administer lie detector tests, and I did, and this was the result, you would agree that would be impermissible testimony? Yes. Okay. Yes, I would. Okay. Yes. Uh, and I think that the reason why I still don't think that there is error here uh, is because he was simply saying, making the same kinds of statements that uh, a lawyer could make to a jury, uh, that I can make to the court. Uh, he was making the same kinds of statements that this court has said many times in terms of why prior consistent statements are admissible. You know, they're, not, they're inadmissible if they don't go to credibility. Uh, you know, that's the rule from this court. Uh, I agree that it is a, it's a novel situation. Uh, but uh, I think that there is a line that has been set up, and it, it's one that helps uh, law enforcement officers not uh, cr you know, uh, create problems for a trial based on an offhand comment, uh, such as she was consistent, she was rock solid. It, it, it was really a rock, uh, uh, an offhand discussion. It was not, this was very at the, near the tail end of the testimony. This wasn't set up uh, in such a way as uh, I think has been characterized where he said, I have a test for determining the truth. Here are the results of the test. Uh, it was more just him trying to provide context for why he was asking these questions. For these reasons, we would respectfully ask the court to affirm uh, the decision below. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Unless members of the court have any questions, I do not think I need to respond. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both. Clark.